Hello friends, I'm Amy Julia Becker, host of Love is Stronger Than Fear. Today I am talking with scholar, writer, podcaster, and activist Jamar Tisby. Jamar Tisby is a PhD candidate at the University of Mississippi. He's also a New York Times bestselling author. We're going to talk about his book, The Color of Compromise, on the show today. And he's a thoughtful, gracious, friendly man with a deep faith in Jesus. So today we get to talk about racism throughout the history of the church in America, our current political moment, the problems that Christians have with critical race theory, and what it means to take a stand for justice here and now. I'm so glad you get to be here with us today. Jamar, it is really an honor to have you on the show today. Thank you for taking the time to join me here. And I'm sitting here, I'm a, you can see this, nobody else can, but this is my hardback copy <laughs> yes. of The Color of Compromise. And I am showing off because what this says is I bought this book when it first came out. We're in it's early been about on the bestseller list in recent weeks, but I bought it before then <laughs> um, because it was deserving of that status, I think, from the beginning. But I'm really grateful that you are taking the time today to talk to me. And also, I'm grateful for the time you took just to write this book. Mm. But I mean, there's so much really in-depth research, and yet it doesn't read like a history book that I'm going to get bored by or that's too, it's, there's so many history books where I'm like, oh, I just want there to be an editor who will tell this person how to help this reach me. But this reached me, so you did a wonderful job, and perhaps so did your editor, I don't know. Yep. Definitely. But I would love for you, for our listeners who are not familiar with your book and with you, just to Tell us a little bit about, I'll read the title, but you can tell us more about it and also what prompted you to write it. So this is mm -hmm. called The Color of Compromise, The Truth About the American Church's Complicity in Racism. So tell us about your book and what got you to write it. So my background and my story is tied into this book. Uh, right now I wear several hats. I'm a PhD candidate in history at the University of Mississippi. I'm the president and founder of The Witness, a black Christian collective, which is a faith-based media company addressing issues of race, religion, and culture from a black Christian perspective. Mm. And I uh, write and speak and do all of these things that are associated with, with books. So this book came out of a couple places. Number one, I sort of got interested in the academic study of history during the height of the Black Lives Matter movement mm. in 2015, 2016. And it's really quite a simple story, which is when you know Mike Brown was killed in Ferguson yeah. and all these protests happened and you, you have peaceful protesters being met with police and riot gear and yep. you know everybody's trying to figure out what's going on. And for me, I found that the, that historians often had the most helpful things to say. Mm. And so this sort of took me down a path that ended me up in grad school. Oh, okay. Um, so where were you at that time in your tra life trajectory? I was just finishing up seminary and getting my MDiv. I thought I was going to go into oh. full-time pastoral ministry. God had other plans, although, wow. you know, these overlaps, it all blends into the story because part of what I was seeing up close was the recalcitrance of many white Christians mm. simply to acknowledge Black Lives Matter at all and the the particular need for a movement in the 21st century. So, yeah. you know, the response of all lives matter or blue lives matter or, you know, you guys are just being divisive or these are riots, you know, all of these things. And I'm like, how is this, how are we seeing things so differently? Right, so, right. We're both Christians. Right, like, right. We're even we in the same church, same seminary. So that was that was really, really frustrating because I knew it, but now it was like at a different level, at a deeper level when you have a national movement happening at the same time. So at that time, I was getting um, into my coursework in, in the PhD program, and I was reading book after book after book, and they, they, they weren't even on the church, but if they mentioned the church... 90% of the time, it was about how white Christians got it wrong on race. Huh. And so, so these worlds are colliding. Uh, sure. I am getting increasingly frustrated and confused by the response of white Christians. And this is also during 
the you know lead up to the 2016 election sure where this current president <laughs> got voted in so there's all this stuff happening right and we're seeing the world so differently i'm like what is happening right now and then i'm reading the history and i was getting more and more i call it a righteous anger mm-hmm. because as you read the history it's like how could we not continue to have these movements how could we not continue to try to 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 work for racial justice and so part of writing the book was uh out of this sense that well maybe if more people knew the history they would understand the need for urgent action right now right that, that really is i hope the point of the book it's it's a book about the past but it's really about the present and the future of the church absolutely history what do we do and you do a great job at the end of making that connection in your final chapter which we will get to but i think that is part of why i really wanted to talk to you today is to make that connection between the past and the present and to re- and to recognize why that's so important before we get there can you talk a little bit just give us some of the history because the church and i say that in quotation marks because i'm talking pretty specifically about the church as far as churches that white people have attended in america uh when i say that but the american church if we're talking about white people in this country and racism have been bound up together. And that's been true, honestly, for a really long time. So I'm wondering if you can, I know you're covering 400 years, but in like, you know, two minutes or so, could you just give us some of that like sweeping picture of how racism and the church have been interwoven in American history because it really affects all of the things you just talked about and kind of who we are and how we are right now. And actually, thank you for asking about the history. It's really interesting how, uh, when I talk about the book, how, how little we get into history. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> people recognize the importance of knowing it, but then they want to talk about right now. So I appreciate the chance to talk a little about the history. And I think the way I approach it in the book is a historical survey. And so each chapter is dealing with uh, one particular major era of American history. Uh, and, and I think it's really important to know, like you said before, this has been happening a really long time. Mm-hmm. So all the way back in the 1490s, when mm-hmm. Columbus makes contact with uh, North America, he's talking about Native Americans in relation to their physical appearance to Europeans Hmm. and based on how similar they were, how good a servant they could be, whether they could be converted to Christianity. And so already there's this sort of hierarchy of of people. And then it only ossifies after that. So uh, there was a period, this is one of the points I make in the book where it didn't have to be this way, right? What we know I remember you writing that, yeah. it seems so, it seems almost inevitable, right? From the perspective of, of the 21st century, that we would have this society based on race, but it never had to be that way. And it right. was the result of deliberate choices by people with power and money uh, to create a system that gave them advantages and, and disadvantaged others. Will so, you tell the 16, 1667 maybe yeah, story? Yeah. Like, exactly, I just, exactly where I was that going. to me was <laughs> one of those moments where it's like, if this had gone the other way, what would we have learned instead? You'd, anyway, you'd will you, will you tell history. that story? Yeah. So, you know, when you, whenever you read a book or do any research or history, there, there are certain events or facts that stick out. And this is one of those. So in 1667, the Virginia Assembly, which is important to note, was a group of white Anglican men. These are mm-hmm. ostensibly Christians. Right. They right. made a rule saying that baptism would not free an enslaved native person of native descent, African descent, or mixed race descent. And that struck me for a couple of reasons. Number one, the timing of it. So this is a hundred years and more before the Declaration of Independence, before the ratification of the Constitution. So there was never any period where America was all that great race Hmm. in terms of race relations, right? And then number two, it sticks out because you have this confluence of race, religion, and politics. So you have this political entity, the Virginia Assembly, making a policy about religion that's based on race. And so that, I think that's crucial because even though we can talk about race, religion, and politics separately, they're intertwined in a way that we can never completely pull apart. And so to talk about one is going to implicate the others as well. And correct me if I'm wrong, but that the thing that also strikes me about that is that they felt as though they needed a policy 
because up until that point, there was a sense of if you are a baptized Christian, we cannot enslave you, right? I mean, we because right. we are all Christians, and that would be such a common identity that enslavement could not be a part of our relationship. I mean, is that true? Precisely. Yeah. Right. yeah. One of the reasons it sticks out is because the custom in England had been you couldn't enslave a brother or sister in Christ. And so that, uh, you know, baptism, which was your sort of spiritual adoption into the household of God, meant that no, no one could own anyone else or enslave anyone else. And so they were breaking with tradition in making that law. And then one of the effects of that that you write about also is so at that point, there was also essentially, a I don't know if we call it a gentleman's agreement or not, that if you are going to want to evangelize the people who are working on the plantations, you have to do so in such a way that would not essentially challenge their status as enslaved people. I mean, exactly. is that accurate? Yeah. So that's, that's a, a precise example of Christian compromise and complicity with racism. So there was this negotiation between missionaries and evangelists and plantation owners and powers that be. So that it was just this really weird cognitive dissonance that people, missionaries, wanted to come over and save souls. Yeah. Plantation owners and slaveholders were like, no, you can't do that because even they recognized there's a liberatory message in the gospel and that if you tell enslaved people that they're created in the image of God and that we're all equal and that we're brothers and sisters spiritually, well, they're going to have these wacky ideas about getting free. We can't have that. And so the solution was not to advocate for emancipation. The solution was, well, we will preach a truncated gospel. That's not how they would have put it, but essentially that's what they were doing. We will, we will tell them about Jesus loving them and, and about eternal salvation. But literally in the baptismal vows that um, Francis Lejar, who was a, a, a missionary, mm. he said that you, um, you vow that you desire baptism purely for the sake of your own soul and not out of any desire for freedom, physical freedom. Wow. That was literally the vow? That's in the vows. And so that was the that was the compromise. So you could evangelize as long as you didn't talk about their actual physical material circumstances, which, oh as we goodness. know, is a divide that persists to this day. The just preach the gospel crowd are artificially inserting a division between mm. the physical and material and the spiritual. I mean, there is the title of your book, The Color of Compromise. I mean, like, just go and again, back however many hundreds of years, but but also forward into our present day and some of the divides we still feel. So that's just such a perfect and sad example. So I wrote a book also called White Picket Fences. And as you know, because we've talked about it a little bit, that was my attempt to understand my own social position, my status as a woman who has grown up white, who's also grown up as a Christian. And I write about the chapter four is kind of the topic that we're talking about here. Uh, I have a chapter called A History of Cancer. And what I'm writing about in that chapter is growing up in Edenton, North Carolina, which was a small and functionally segregated town. And I there, I loved history when I was a kid. I loved growing up in a historic town. There were these like placards all over the town and there had been this thing called the Edenton Tea Party and everyone was very proud because it was earlier than the Boston Tea Party. So I learned all of this history, but I never learned anything about the history of our town when it came to enslavement, to race, to the Confederacy, to racism. And that was an ongoing daily reality. And it was really devastating for me as an older teenager and then later as an adult to look back on that. But I want to bring up, there's a place in your book where you write, the color of compromise is about telling the truth so that reconciliation, robust, consistent, honest reconciliation might occur across racial lines. And so that makes me say, like, why is it important as we try to understand our present moment to understand our history and how does looking back on this pain in our history lead us to this honest reconciliation this possibility for healing in the present how do you see the pain and the healing 
the you know past horrors and the present possibilities for reconciliation connect yeah history is about identity mm. i think of the the 10 commandments how do they begin uh, i am the lord your god who brought you out of egypt you will have no other gods before me that's an act of remembering god is saying remember what i did for you remember who you are where you once were and where i've brought you mm. and because of that this is who you now are. This is who you follow, et cetera, et cetera. In a, in a, in a derivative way, our, our own racial history as a church is about our identity. Hmm. It's about who we were, who we are, who we want to become. And so not knowing our history or even misremembering our history, as, as you indicated, you know, telling part of the story is actually an assault on our identity. Mm -hmm. We don't get the full picture of who we are. Uh, whether as a corporate body as the church or as individuals. And so we want to tell history as robustly and honestly. And by the way, the Bible does this all the time, right? Like if I say King David, the first thing people remember is probably what he got wrong, right. <laughs> not what he got right. And, yeah. and, and, you know, why can't we do the same with people who the Bible would think far less of perhaps than King David who was a man after God's own heart? Why can't we do the same with Confederate leaders and generals? Why can't we do the same with preachers and pastors and theologians who got it wrong on race? It can actually be instructive to go back and to say what they got wrong. And that gets to your the second yeah. part of your question. You know, what where's the healing? Well, number one, um, you know, King said, you know, like like a boil that that can't be healed unless it's exposed to light and air that's this festering wound of, yeah. of racism in our nation and in the church unless we expose it which we have yet to comprehensively do really whether it's a congregational level a denominational level a national level a personal level we so avoid these truths because we want to perceive of ourselves as innocent um, or at least having progressed beyond these sort of racist uh, underpinnings uh, uh, but until we do that we can't heal it we can't heal what we don't reveal as many say. Yeah, amen. I think back also, uh, you know, for me, looking back at the past and recognizing that what I thought of as idyllic and good and really great. I mean, I was really grateful for my school, my church, my town, my family. It was really disorienting and painful to look back and say, wait a second, this place where I grew up and had lovely Christian people in my life uh, was also a place where I went to an all-white church and there was a black church down the road. I went to an all-white school that was um, what I learned later, a trend. It was a part of private Christian academies uh, that sprang up throughout the South uh, yeah. over the course of desegregation actually taking effect. And I, again, I loved my school when as a kid and I've really wrestled with understanding my history in its complexity. And I think, of course, people, other white Christians right now don't have the same story as me. And there are many white Christians who did not grow up going to an all white school, although I think there probably are many of us who did go to a very predominantly white church. But I'm wondering how we wrestle with that tension between being grateful for what we have been given and grieving the injustice that was a part of that while we seek perhaps to participate in undoing that injustice. So it's like holding together this history of racism and you as a Christian also, like you're looking this in the teeth and also holding up a commitment to the gospel and to the church. You know, you're not walking away from a commitment to that. So I'm wondering if you've been in any way disoriented by anything that you've learned about your church, you know, <laughs> uh, because certainly although you have an African-American experience, it's still the church globally, the church in America, mm -hmm. it's, it's all of ours. And so I'm wondering how you've dealt with that same tension or whether you just have any kind of advice for yeah. people like me who are looking at that. Right. I mean, I think this is really where the biblical truths come into play, uh, you know, there before the grace of God go I, and really understanding grace that, that you know, we get a lot wrong <laughs> a lot of times. Mm. And Jesus 
loves us in and through that um, and, and sort of clinging to that truth, even yeah. not just for ourselves, but we got to apply that to, to the church body as well, that, that the church gets a lot wrong, uh, but, but Christ has promised to build the church. So there's hope there. The other aspect is recognizing that the church is much broader than one's own experience. So one thing I didn't get to do in the book was really talk about black church history and the black church tradition, yeah, which is a history of resistance and resilience and liberation. And so you mm-hmm. want to talk about, you know, hope, you, you look at some of these historic black churches and black Christians, uh, both past and present, you know, yeah. uh, we have a lot of really great examples still. Uh, the recently uh, passed away John Lewis, Congressman John Lewis, I mean, this man went to seminary. He was yeah. you know, set to be a preacher, basically. But he applied his faith toward freedom fighting for, for Black people and really all people. So we have some wonderful examples there if we would expand our notions of church beyond our own personal experiences or the people whose books we read on our bookshelves, right? Um, right. The church is global, for sure. And uh, especially one of the things I've learned is to look at the church on the margins. Look at the church that, that is peopled by the disenfranchised and the, and the oppressed. And so, you know, one book recommendation is Jesus yeah. and the Disinherited uh, by Howard Thurman. Yeah. Does a does a wonderful job of describing sort of really the heart of Jesus as it comes to the, the poor and the oppressed, or as he describes it, people with their backs against the wall. That's where I think because it's in that crucible of suffering that so much of this deep rooted faith takes becomes real you know what i mean i do yeah and i think about one of the things i've been so struck by this is probably you might know better than i true throughout our history but certainly in recent years is the spiritual language that's used to describe our racial and social divisions so america's original sin or even someone like Ta-Nehisi Coates, who is an atheist, talks about spiritual reckoning as something yeah. that we need. And you're like, well, what do you mean by that? You know, just <laughs> because, but there's a sense of like, and there was a book by John Meacham, I can't remember, but it had angels and demons like in mm-hmm. the title, also dealing with race. Like there's just this sense of, this is an issue that goes beyond even like this plane of existence. And right. it also though, it makes me think, the church actually has the tools that the society does not at least in whole have to deal with this because we know about forgiveness and we know about reconciliation and we also know about being what you were just saying rooted and established in a love that is deeper and wider than us if i just try to summon up the love for my neighbor I mean, it like hardly goes as far as my daughter some days, you know, much less like the person who is actually considered my enemy. But we do have this in terms of our scripture and tradition, at least. And I think for me, reading John Lewis's memoirs, looking Mm -hmm. back to Martin Luther King's sermons, there's such a sense of that rooted and grounded in a love that is not coming from their own willpower. And I take so much spiritual sustenance from that and feel like it could really enliven what the church has to offer our country right now in as we i think start waking up to the need for healing and doing that hard work of exposing the wounds and yes a hundred percent if white christians accept the theology and the christianity of people like john lewis and martin luther king as legitimate and so <laughs> yeah, will you so will you say more about that? A like how that has been delegitimized or like seen as illegitimate. And again, speaking of history, because I think there's a direct line between the way white Christians saw King in the '60s and some of the conversations we're having still yes. right now. Yes. So uh, yes, there is a history to it. Part of the history is the idea that old white men are the repositories of the oracles of God. Mm. And so they have the real theology. And this this spans both conservative and liberal branches of the church, yeah. uh, where you know so much of theology that is taken as normative is coming out of Europe and completely ignores any sort of African or Middle Eastern origins of our theologies. And it, it also ignores or subordinates uh, theologies coming from 
people of, of different ethnicities, yeah. uh, whether Latin American or Asian or Native American. So, so there is a privileging in our discourse of uh, a particular kind of theology, which then, because it's coming from people of European descent who are then coded as white in the United States, uh, it comes with that racial baggage too. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, some of the folks I write about in the book are heroes for a lot of people, from Jonathan Edwards to George Whitfield, who were yeah. both slave owners. And Whitfield's so interesting because he goes from, you know, not saying much about slavery and not really being very pro-slavery. He wasn't anti-slavery, but he wasn't waving a banner or anything, to then becoming very pro-slavery. And he mm-hmm. basically says to uh, the governor of Georgia, he's like, you know, if, if you guys want to be financially prosperous, you're going to have to have slavery in wow. Georgia because it wasn't originally founded uh, with, uh, with a pro-slavery uh, ethos or, or structure. And then you can go up in time toward folks like Billy Graham, yeah. who to me was kind of the epitome of the white moderate that King talks about in his letter from a Birmingham jail, Mm -hmm. and also kind of the epitome of compromise and complicity, right? Right. And and this is one of the things that I wanted to bring out is that when when we think about racism and racists, we tend to think of the extremes, right? The people putting on white robes and hoods, burning crosses, holding a noose. That completely ignores the droves of people who knew all this was happening and didn't do anything about it. And that would, I would say, would be the majority of Christians. And so with Billy Graham, you know, from inviting King to say an opening prayer at, at one of his rallies to just a few years later saying King needs to put on the brakes a little bit right. to in, I think it was the 80s, saying, you know, I should have participated in the March on Selma. Uh, and, and he didn't at the time when the movement was happening. Right. You know, it, it, it's just, I think, a very instructive story about how somebody who in the 50s, before Brown v. Board, took down the rope at his uh, crusades dividing white and black people. Right. And yet, he's also, you know, trumpeting this anti-communism message, which on its surface, okay, but, but when you understand it's applied to civil rights activists, right. because they're right. talking about equality and, and, and uh, white Christians are saying, well, that's the same thing as communists talking about you know, uh, completely equally sharing resources and it's going to lead to, you know, despotism, et cetera. So anyway, all of that to say, I don't even remember what the original question was, but there's a history. There's a history Yeah, but like how I think Martin Luther King, how he was viewed in his time by Uh, white Christians and also how that relates to today. That's right. That's right. Great. Thank you. So, so MLK, of course, when, when he was killed, which I say that advisedly, he didn't just die. He was assassinated. He was killed. Yeah. Uh, Was very unpopular, deeply unpopular nationally, especially for his anti-war, anti-militarism stance at that point. But many Christians today who now quote him in his day, would have decried him, most likely. They looked at his Christian theology. I mean, this man is a minister. He's got a PhD in theology. You know, he's got all the credentials you could look for. He was was a preacher's kid of a prominent black church. But his theology was not seen as legitimate. It was seen as heterodox. It was seen as uh, too liberal to be Mm -hmm. followed mainly because he was talking about racial justice. And, And that persists to this day. So that you know, people like John Lewis, I think of Bree Newsom, mm-hmm. uh, who most people, I, I think, forget. But when, when she took down the, the Confederate flag in front of the state house in, in South Carolina, yeah. she had a, 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 a message that said, you, you, you come before me with guns. I come before you in the name of God. Yeah. Right. This is a very faith filled kind of activism. But that kind of activism that fights racial justice and says it's because of my Christian faith that I do this is often undermined. What's happening right now, and, and your listeners maybe uh, have heard this, what's happening right now to delegitimize Christians fighting for racial justice is the accusation of critical race theory. I don't right. know if you've heard this. But, I have, uh, and I've been thinking a lot about it, but I would love for you to talk a little bit about well, I do. It. I want to hear your thoughts too. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm thoroughly frustrated by it because yeah. it's a relatively recent phenomenon and I saw this grow from a seed from from a small group of people to now it's like 
every time I talk about racial justice, people ask a question about critical race theory. So it's spread. It's been on the biggest platforms, lots of people responding to it. So I'm frustrated because this is in the tradition of gaslighting and stiff arming. Will you just say what gaslighting is if no one yeah, knows what yeah. you're referring to or someone doesn't know? <laughs> so uh, when it comes to race, it's people saying there's no there there. It's black people expressing our experience and perspectives and people saying, well, you're making too much of it or you're being divisive. Are um, you sure that's what they meant? Are you sure that's what they meant? Exactly. Questioning your very sort of perspective on things. And it's mm-hmm. so frustrating. So it's come up a lot. And, and here's my response to that is not to go point by point and say why critical race theory is helpful or not helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, but to say, if you want to talk about threats to Christianity, particularly in the United States, we need to talk about Christian nationalism. Mm. That's what the conversation should be about. Critical race theory, you can throw out all you want. At the end of the day, it's it, two things are happening. Uh, number one, you're trying to discredit the person who is making a legitimate point about racial justice. And number two, you are actually deflecting from where the real problem is, which is Christian nationalism. Yeah, well, so yes, on the Christian national nationalism, but I think also on the equivalent of today's mo- white moderates, right? Like, yeah, yeah. because if we can put the Black Lives Matter movement hook, line, and sinker into the category of Marxism, then we can just put it back on the shelf in the closet and say, we don't take that out. And we've learned not to. And I think what I've thought about is two things. One, I have become more and more convinced as over the past however many years that healing the social divisions within the church is critical, central to the work of the gospel in the world. And I would say that based on Ephesians 3, that the Mm. mystery of the gospel for Paul was that Jews and Gentiles were reconciled in Christ. That sense that we all belong in the family of God, no matter what those dividing walls are, that that is the mystery of the gospel. Like that's the mystery, that's the power. So that, first of all, seems to me, again, as you said, like let's stop talking about critical race theory for a second and just say what is central to the gospel and we're not paying attention to that. So that's the first thing. And then secondly, I keep thinking about um, Paul on Mars Hill when he's preaching and he says, hey, look at all you spiritual seekers here. That's so great. You've even got a statue to an unknown God. He doesn't say, let me wag my finger at you for being pagans. He says, that's awesome. You want to know God. Let me tell you about him. And that's what I see when I see critical race theory. Do I think from a Christian perspective, it's all true? No. But do I think that there's some truth there that can be affirmed and that we can actually walk in solidarity in saying that, yes, like oppressed people deserve their rights? Like, well, yes, we do. I mean, I can absolutely do that. And I can do that because of the love of God. So I I agree with you 100 percent. But those are my current thoughts on the other part. (laughs) I love that. And and bringing it back to uh, the Areopagus, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, And the other part is. I haven't seen other folks who are leveling this accusation present effective alternatives, right? Yeah. So, so it seems to be an endeavor that's completely dedicated to tearing down, but not really proposing much of an alternative that doesn't essentially equate to just preach the gospel and everything will be all right, which, mm-hmm. is, which is sort of a detached, uh, when I say just preach the gospel, the way it usually gets deployed is, if we teach the right things, people will believe the right things and act the right way. Yeah. But we know the human heart based on what scripture teaches us, and it doesn't work like that. No, nor are we uh, these disembodied heads that don't have emotions and desires and passions that war against what we you know, intellectually know to be true, right? right. So, so it, it doesn't work on not just a pragmatic level. It's just, it's not the way we're built, right? It, it, um, we're, we're body, soul, and mental beings, right? So, so we have to address all of those things. And from what I've seen, you know, it's not like there's this whole alternative protest movement that's happening right now among Christians. Rather, we're having to follow a lot of people who, who don't follow Christ because they're actually 
further along the path to promoting racial justice than many people in the church are. Well, and I think it also goes back, if we go back to the beginning of this conversation, and that sense of baptism is just about your soul. And so there is this really deep and long through line that says Christianity is just a spiritual matter and keep it in its proper place or and if it's going to get really mucked up, you know, and it's like, no, no, actually from it. I mean, the whole concept of the incarnation Mm -hmm. is that Christianity is not just a spiritual matter, that in fact, God came in the flesh and healed in the flesh and taught in the flesh and resurrected in the flesh and will return in the flesh. I mean, all of those things and not just for our spiritual salvation. I've been actually doing some work on healing stories in the gospels Mm -hmm. and just knowing that the word for made well or healed in the gospels is literally the same word in Greek as the word for save. Wow. So English translators will translate it depending on the context to kind of have a more spiritual or a more physical meaning, but there was no differentiation in terms of what was written and spoken at the time because that connection between the physical and the spiritual Uh, it hadn't been divorced. And um, I think one of the, again, one of the things the church has to offer is that reconnecting of ourselves with the body and the spirit. But one of the things we're resisting in conversations like, you know, oh, we're we're not going to get involved in all of that protest because it doesn't have to do with the center of the gospel is we're just keeping the spirit and the flesh disconnected in a way that I don't think is it all what Jesus lived or taught or offered to us through his life and death and resurrection? So I'm curious, I want to get, make sure I get to this because I find that it's really easy to put racism, whether that's racism in American history, racism in the American church. And you touched on this a little bit with the white, you know, robes and burning crosses. But again, to say it was certainly happened long ago and far away, especially for those of us who live in some place like Connecticut, right? So (laughs) I experienced this when I moved to Connecticut, I was 10 years old, and all of a sudden, I'm in like an all white town, where everyone's talking about how it was so racist where I used to live. And I'm like, but you don't even know any black people. Like, I, I, I mean, you're right that there was racism there. But what are you talking about? You know, and so I've always been a little bit perplexed by this. But I just think at the same time, I do think the way racism works, outside of a context where there's explicit bigotry and explicit overt hatred through words and gestures is more insidious and subtle, perhaps, like harder to see unless you know what to look for. So I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about how white churches in other parts of the country than the South have perpetuated racism, participated in the perpetuation of racism, you know, really whatever you want to talk about on that. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I live in the Mississippi Delta on the Arkansas side, and it is what one author called the most southern place on earth. And wow. <laughs> comes with all the stairs. It's 90 degrees by 9 a.m. down here. My commute to school is literally through cotton fields. And so I try not to draw too big a distinction between the South and other parts of the country. If there is a distinction to be drawn, it is the physicality and the geography of race down here, right? So, you know, going to school at a place like the University of Mississippi, which has up until literally just last week, a a Confederate statue at the entrance of campus, a few hundred yards away from the bronze statue of James Meredith, uh, who was the first black person to integrate in 1962 amid white race riots where two people ended up dead. So, so that sort of history that, that is visible and tangible all around you is something. But I grew up in the Midwest, in the Chicagoland area, and we actually had a lot of visible or aesthetic diversity. Uh, So people from uh, East and Southeast Asia, people from a lot of folks from uh, Mexico, Honduras, Mm. and Central and South America, uh, a lot of black folks, white folks. So I grew up in this context where we wouldn't have used this term at the time, but it it seemed post-racial, right? It seemed that, well, look at all this diversity. People are mm-hmm. around, getting along with one another. We're fine. But like you said, you got to know what to look for. So most of the time when we saw that diversity, it was at a gathering spot like a mall or a sports game. 
But then after that, you went back to your segregated neighborhoods. Okay. I remember one of my earliest memories of racial inequality was in middle school and I was on the basketball team. I did not play. It didn't play well, but I was, <laughs> I was on the basketball team and we, we were at this blue collar Catholic school that was essentially a mission school. And it was nothing, almost no, no one but uh, black and Latino kids there. Hmm. And then uh, we had this pockmarked gym, wood gym floor that had just been lacquered over again and again and again because nobody could ever repair to uh, pay to fix it. We didn't have locker rooms. We had to change in like the custodial closet room. Yeah. Then we went to this Catholic school in uh, one of the suburbs where like all of the CEOs from Chicago live. And we went into their gym middle school same age they had this rubber floor right and i was like i, I didn't even know a rubber floor existed and yeah. everything was clean and big and nice and that's where you have to start to look right like our schools are are hyper segregated and because of this racist funding model they're also very unequal in terms of resources i am so concerned about this upcoming school year because I live in a county, uh, I live in a city, well, the county was listed in a USA Today article as the fourth poorest county in, in the U.S. Wow. And in my town, which is 75% black, which you can trace back to the history of sharecropping and race-based chattel slavery, mm -hmm. there, 41% live at or below the poverty line. The state rate is less than 20%. So it's double the state and, and, and even higher than that if you look at some other uh, areas around the country. And, you know, this is a rural area, so it comes with those issues. But, but you got poor folks in urban areas who are going to be expected to do virtual classes. And I remember reading an article about a family, a single mom, three or four kids. They had to take turns on her cell phone to do their online coursework. They didn't all have iPads or computers or laptops or anything like that. So anyway, I'm, I'm going on and on and on because this is so critical that we recognize how race continues to function, not just across geographies, but apart from individual intentions and motivations. Well, and I also think about the example you just used of schooling. It's something I've been also spending a lot of time fretting about and thinking about as far as the kids in our state who will not have access to the same education as my kids do and just how unjust that is. And that was true, honestly, before virtual learning, but it's become so yep. visible to me even as we've been even more separated from each other because of you know staying at home but seeing my daughter with her school issued chromebook doing you know engaging with her teachers and knowing that there are kids in cities in connecticut who certainly don't have their own chromebooks that the school gave them years ago so they've been using four years which prepared them and their teachers for this moment um, but also knowing they don't have connectivity in their neighborhoods and then that the school is basically providing worksheets if they can get them. I mean, so th that alone. But then I also think about, and I very much believe that we should have actual government work done so that we can change our educational disparities. But I also think about the ways in which if churches saw this as a justice issue that matters to the heart of God, I don't know what creative things we could do, but wow, there are a lot of churches that do have access to Wi-Fi. Yes. There are a lot of churches that have educators in them. There are a lot of churches where you've got people who care about kids and who might be able to come up with creative solutions. There are a lot of churches that just have money for heaven's sake. Like there you go. there's so much just in that one little area where no, we cannot solve the education crisis in America. But might there be a healing role for Christians to play when it comes in this moment to kids who are not getting the education that they absolutely deserve to receive? So I'm, well, I'm with you on asking. I don't that know question. if you're ordained, but you better preach. <laughs> yes. Yes. Thank you. I'm not ordained, but I do <laughs> both officially and unofficially. So uh, <laughs> I, appreciate I that. love it. Well, I, all right, I have one more question and then I want to just make sure we record again where people can kind of find out more from you. So my last question is just to say, do you find any hope for the future of the church? Uh, where does that come from? What does reconciliation look like? What are you seeing that actually does bring you a sense of hope? So I think we have to understand sort of 
what sends a sense of not hopelessness, but gravity in the present moment, seeing with my spiritual eyes, I see a deep and growing darkness mm. in our world. This, I mean, I, I am on social media a lot, but even I have had to step back because the doom and, and, and it's not just like bad news. It's, it, it's, deeply troubling mm. and disturbing news of human rights abuses and you know just things keep going from bad to worse as the bible might say right mm. so i think we need to be very sober about the times that we're in yeah. which should also cause us to say you know to respond to the question choose this day whom you will serve mm. right like now now is the time i think I think for pe- for many people, especially if they're relatively shielded from injustices and oppression, whether through money or race or gender or something else, it can feel like, wow, lots happening, but I don't know if like, you know, something more is going to happen or is there going to be another time when I get involved or I'm letting you know right now, now is the time. Now is the time. Like this is a massive movement for racial justice in particular, but for justice in general. Mm. And a lot of people say, well, if I had been alive during the civil rights movement, I would have marched, I would have boycotted, I would have protested. Well, guess what? We are in the next wave of the civil rights movement right now. Don't pretend as if you would have been involved then if you're not getting involved now. So now is the time. And you ask what gives hope. It's in the midst of this present and growing darkness that you see God's remnant, Mm. God's people who are not all the ones who call on Jesus' name, right? Mm-hmm. Many, many call Lord, Lord, but they're not really dedicated to the Lord. But there is a remnant that God always has that is serious about Jesus and serious about justice. I know some of these folks. They're team members at The Witness, a black Christian collective. Uh, they're uh, folks I get to interact with, like you, who are taking this seriously and want to be part of the solution. Uh, I think there's a uh, an awakening uh, right now in the souls of Christians who who realize that now, perhaps for the first time in their life, what it looks like to put their faith into action, yeah. particularly on on behalf of the oppressed. So that's what gives me hope is knowing that you know the way God works is is it's often not through a huge group of people. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. it, it, it's through that small group that's that's truly dedicated, whose faith has been refined and and who continue to work for God's glory and, and for the love of their neighbor. So mm-hmm. I look for those points of light in, in in small places and on the margins and and praise be to God that, that the truth shines in the darkness. Mm. Yeah, thank you. Well, I want to end just by giving one more plug for your book, The Color of Compromise, because not only does it do an equally engaging job as you have done right now in just telling the story of the American church, but you do also conclude with ways for people to get involved that are accessible and that are actually going to be a part of what you just said, like deciding right now that I'm going to be a part of this movement for justice. Um, but will you also just end by telling us if people want to know more about Jamar yes. Tisby and the work you're doing, where should they go? I'm so glad because this is certainly the beginning of a conversation and, and not the end or the continuance of a conversation. So if you want to keep the conversation going, there's a bunch of things you can do. You can go to our online book study for The Color of Compromise. Uh, so it's on Facebook, facebook.com slash groups slash the color of compromise facebook.com slash groups slash the color of compromise my next book is available for pre-order it's called i didn't even know that yeah yeah so uh the last chapter of the color of compromise talks about what we can do practical steps and strategies and it's based around a model i've been developing called the arc of racial justice Mm -hmm. which is an acronym that stands for awareness relationships commitment So I just get to touch on it in the first book, but in the second book, it's entirely structured around the arc of racial justice. And it is a book from uh, beginning to end about practical ways to address racial justice. And so for people looking for the next step, asking the question, all right, I believe you, but what do I do? How to fight racism, courageous Christianity, and a journey toward racial justice. 
is available for pre-order now. You can also visit our websites, thewitnessbcc.com. And lastly, we started in October of 2019, something called the Witness Foundation. Hmm. This is a fellowship program. We are looking to pilot it uh, this upcoming year. And what we want to do is address the racial wealth gap as it affects black Christian ministry. Hmm. And so we know that according to different studies, white, the median white family has 10 times the assets of the median black family. And this affects our ability to do ministry too. Right. And so what we want to do is say, well, if we can offer grants of 25, 30, $35,000 or more to promising black Christian leaders who are already doing good work, what might they be able to do even more now that some of this burden of the financial aspect. And then along with that, we're, we're, we're having mentors, we're doing programming and training. Uh, we're, we're going to build their capacity as leaders. And so if you want to financially support that, you can go to the witnessfoundation.co, the witnessfoundation.co. You can find out all kinds of information. Dozens of people have already donated. We'd love for you to make a tangible contribution to racial justice in this way. And we will make sure that all of those addresses and links get into the show notes and hopefully people will be quick to explore more because I know I'm going to be looking at pre-ordering your next book and I'm really grateful for the work you're doing. I don't really know how you do it because you also are writing a dissertation. Uh, yeah, the answer is not well. <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe that, but I'm grateful that we got an hour of your time because it is clearly precious and I'm really, yeah, really grateful. Thank you for being with us today. I enjoyed the conversation and thank you for your great questions. All right. Blessings to you. Hey, friends, if you are new here, I just want to mention that there are some other really great episodes from earlier in the season. So I encourage you to take a look at those previous episodes and subscribe to this podcast so that you can stay up to date in the future. I've got some great guests who are coming on the show later on in the season. Uh, Kara Meredith, Esau McCauley, Dominic Gilliard, Subira Gordon. So I'm really excited to share those interviews with you in the future. I'm also really grateful for those of you who are telling other people about this podcast and these conversations, please keep sharing. Share, you know, send a text to a friend sharing this episode, share it on social media, but let people know if this conversation has been helpful or encouraging to you, please let other people know about it. And if you have like a whopping three to five minutes to spare, I would also really appreciate you taking the time to rate or review Love is Stronger Than Fear wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you again next week.